Hello, and welcome back to the Hidden Gems Movie Podcast. My name is Sam, and I am joined by my longtime friend, movie soulmate, podcast partner, Steve. How are you? I'm doing fine. You forgot, sometime nemesis. Yeah, sometimes enemy. But the thing is, we haven't seen each other in a long time because I've been on kind of a summer break. I just want to say I know it's been a long time since our last episode. It's been about an over a month. Um, and for the approximate 20 of you listeners out there that I know listen to us regularly, I apologize. Um, things happen in life. It, you know, it's just, you know, sometimes you have a month, you get super busy, and you can't do your hobbies. But I promise that we are back now. It's going to be more regular, more re- I can't, I forgot how to talk because I haven't <laughs> been on a podcast in so long. The it's, skills we lose. Exactly. It's going to be uh, more regular than ever. I do promise that. We are going to really try and get this thing out once every two weeks. I think that's the goal. Uh, having not done it in over a month, I kind of... Even more now than ever, I want to get this out regular style, regular like C. <laughs> so, anyways, I just want to apologize. I like that regular C. Yeah, so because it reminds me of uh, gangster movies, and we should do gangster film noir. I want to, yeah, gangster movies. They're so overdone. They're just like, they're so. They're everybody's favorite movie. You know, that's interesting because uh, yeah, I think some directors, mm-hmm. especially new directors, yeah. they want to take a shortcut. Yeah. To artistic um, accomplishment, yeah, by relying on a, a genre they know that uh, the critics will go gaga over. I also think it's a good way. It's like I want to make a movie. I want it to be artistic, and I want it to get funded. And a yes. gangster movie is a good way to try and accomplish all three: violence and visual style. Yeah, ex- mm. exactly. All right, so let's talk about today's episode. Today's episode are directors who only made one good movie in their life. Now, before we get started on our first movie that we're going to do, I want to say something for the record. I desperately wanted to be controversial on this one. I wanted to drop a nuclear bomb of opinions uh, on this podcast today, and I couldn't do it because of one movie. I wanted to do Steven Spielberg, and I wanted to say that Jurassic Park is his only good movie. And my only problem with this was that the first Indiana Jones movie is undoubtedly a good movie. But if it hadn't been for Indiana Jones, I would have argued this Steven Spielberg point to the death. Um, all right, really really quickly, yeah. you know, I refute your, your, your uh, argument. I'm with, sure you would. With um, Jaws? Nope. Uh, um, Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Definitely not worse than Jaws. Oh, uh, they're they're both both masterpieces. And uh, and I know you I know you have your problems with Schindler's List. I've always maintained you could teach people how to make movies with Schindler's List. So, so I think is... you're you. Oh, and yeah. um, also uh, Saving Private Ryan. I think I I think you are so wrong. Okay, I'm really glad you brought up Schindler's <clears throat> List and Saving Private Ryan. And I just want to preface everything I'm about to say with everything I'm about to say with is. I am Jewish, so don't come at me. All right, you can't. <laughs> you can't. Uh, Saving Private Ryan and Schindler's List are both excellent examples of recreation, and that's all they are. There's no point of view. There's no artistry. There is no story. They are just the greatest recreations of historical events, but they are nothing more than that. They, they are simply what it looked like and sounded like, but there's no artistry to it. It is pure technical achievement and that is all in my mind okay here's why you're wrong okay um <laughs> on on saving private ryan yeah. the, the artistry is you're, you're right the, um the first challenge was um recreation yeah of d-day mm-hmm. 
which was a or magnificent. The Holocaust. Well, uh, yeah. for, for um, yeah. you know, uh, same part, Ryan. Yeah. After that, the movie does hang extremely well on showing how, uh, you know, the grunt eye view. It was funny, you know, before nineteen seventies, before the seventies, I think uh, movies didn't uh, do a lot of a lot of grunt eye view. It was always you know you you, were, you had midway mm-hmm. and you had the longest day, and was usually you. Of course, you had to have some grunt eye view. But you had a mix mm-hmm. of, you know, Grunt Eye View and how, you know, the leaders, you know, the patents. And, mm-hmm. and, then, and then it changed. And, it, and I, there's something, something was lost a little bit with it because you didn't get the overarching ideas of, you know, of combat and warfare. Having said that, the, uh, I, I found this incredibly believable. The Tom Hanks character is, is a school teacher. And he has to deal with this responsibility. I, I found it enormously touching. And with Schindler's List, mm-hmm. you know, it, it's how a unexceptional man does one exceptional thing. That's what this movie's really about. You could say it's a re- re- recreation of a Holocaust, but this is a fascinating look into how a man, for one brief period of time, probably the only time, he elevated himself to a genuinely good man. Two counterpoints. One, Saving Private Ryan, none of those characters are memorable. And the Tom Hanks character... The Tom Hanks story is very the, memorable. The Tom Hanks character was better done by Jeff Daniels in Gettysburg than he was in Saving Private Ryan. Saving Private Ryan, none of those scenes after the first scene are memorable. All the conversations are forgettable. Nothing is touching. Nothing is artistic. It's all technical achievement. And Saving Private Ryan... Sorry, in Schindler's List, nobody gives a fig about Oscar Schindler in that movie. It's all about this, the, uh, the, the crystal-knocked... Uh, you know, like the you know, basically the raids into the ghettos and the footage of the concentration camps and all of the docudrama stuff they do is what's memorable from Schindler's List. But the actual story of Oscar Schindler in that movie is the weakest part of the movie. is not memorable. is not particularly well written. And that movie's famous because it's the really the first movie to present the Holocaust as if you were watching the news footage of it, which was his stated goal. Um, but that, to me, is a technical achievement and not an artistic one. I don't think, you know, I've said for a long time, I think that, that Steven Spielberg is the most brilliant 12-year-old to ever direct a movie. And that is a compliment and an insult. It's a, if he were 12 today, we would herald him as one of the great geniuses of all time in anything. But because he's been in his 40s, or he's older than that now, he's just like this incredible entertainer with a 12-year-old's ability for, ra- for rationale and reason. If what you said was true, then yeah. the, the last epi- the, the, the last uh, scenes yeah. in uh, in Schindler's List wouldn't be so moving when he said, "Oh, you know, if, if I had removed this, sold this button, I could have saved a few more lives." I I, th- I think it's a fascinating portrait, and I, I really do, and I don't think it's the, the weakest part. Well, I put you in a difficult position of of being a non Jewish person having to defend Schindler's List. <laughs> you're you're not allowed. I don't to have even. a problem. <laughs> <laughs> How dare you? Yeah. Look, look. Uh, he, he, the, the accomplishments of a Close Encounters and Jaws alone make him unsuitable for this. Okay, let's get away from him. I had to. Do you want to say some, one more thing? Well, um, no. Um, this is a tough category. Yeah, it is. I, I, had a really I hard found time. it very hard, and I'm going to go over some, some possible movies that we could have picked. Okay, good. Taking of the Pelham 123. Oh, that would Now, we already did that it, would, Yeah, we've already done yeah. that, but that would have fit perfectly. Yeah. This is one of the. It's not a masterpiece. But it is one of the finest 
tough thrillers you'll ever see. And it's the only thing I think it was uh, Joseph Sargent ever did outside of TV. Yeah. That had any decent Pardon reputation. Pardon my French. Some movies are just fucking great. Yeah. And that's you can't describe <laughs> that movie without being like, it's fucking great. <laughs> yeah. Because then you know, we're not talking prestige stuff here. We're just like, it's fucking great. Yeah. All right, continue. Um, Kevin Costner. Ooh. Now, this is controversial because I don't include Dances with yeah, the Wolves as the single. Because although th- there is a chunk of this movie that's that's intentionally pleasurable on yeah. a Steven Spielberg, according to you, Steven Spielberg, childish way. Is it Waterworld? Open Range. Open Range. Open Range is a good, yeah. solid movie, and he's never directed anything I'm with you. that was as good as that. I'm with you. I'm trying to think if there's anything else, because he didn't do uh, He didn't, do he didn't direct Waterworld. And he he didn't, direct uh, that's right. He didn't do Field of Dreams. No. So, okay. All right. Yeah. I'm with you. I, I just I don't know enough Kevin Costner. Dire- well, there never, weren't that many. There's The Postman, in, which yeah. was a disaster. He never turned into Robert Redford Mel Gibson. Right. And never. You would think he would have, because he won the Oscar for Best Director, did he not? He did. He's an interesting... One day, we could do an episode just on Kevin Costner, who is a guy I liked, then I didn't like, and then I liked even more than <laughs> the first time I liked him. You're right. His, uh, I, I better leave with that, because I could really get into Kevin Costner. His career didn't turn out the way I thought it would for a, a megastar of his stature at the time mm. he was a megastar. His, his, his light has faded more than I ever thought it would have. Really? You think he's as famous today as he used to be? I wouldn't. No, no. But what has salvaged his career is the reputation of um, uh, that series he's doing right now, which everybody is crazy about. Oh, Yellowstone. Yellowstone, which I think it's. I think it's a little overrated. I can. You know, when you have when you have a character who keeps spouting off about how things are, and that's the only thing they do. That's tough to watch. They got three of those characters, and I can't take. The guy was though one of the biggest American movie stars on the planet, though, and now he's on a. On a TV show that I think's on a weird, it's on the Paramount Network or yeah, something. So it is, it is. I wouldn't say that's like salvage career. I right, keep going. Okay, um, but that I, I think that that would be legitimate. How about this? My favorite year, Richard Benjamin's My Favorite Year, which was one of the most charming comedies you will ever come across. Haven't seen it. Then we had that. That has to be something for another time. Okay. But uh, he never did anything. He he did something called Racing with the Moon with Nicolas Cage and Sean Penn, which I admit I haven't seen. Yeah. Okay. Everything else he's done is garbage. The okay. Money Pit. It just isn't good. Uh, so many so many movies. This was a fluke. Melanie Griffith, I think, is a perfect example. Oh. Working Girl is so much better than anything she ever did before or after. But she's not a director. Well, that's true, but if, if we expand yeah. it to stars, which I think we, we had talked about maybe doing We could uh, probably actors. think of more than one movie for her, because <clears throat> we know she's been in two good movies, Working Girl and Nobody's Fool. Shoot, I forgot about Nobody's yeah, Fool. All right, so take, take Melanie Griffith off. All mm-hmm. right, all right. And um, Hal Needham. Hal Needham directed Smokey and the Bandit, okay. which is Never seen it. wonderful. It is fantastic from beginning to end. You could argue that Hooper which he made two years later, or maybe the, year, the next year, uh, um, was good. It was decent, but n- everything else is garbage. You know, the cannonball, just, just absolute garbage. And uh, like it, was, it, was, it was tough. It, it, it was tough. Okay, but, but so that's what I came up with. It was really tough. I had to go to Google. I cheated. And what happened with me was I saw a movie that I really liked and I think is a hidden gem and I just would have done in any kind of hidden gem category I could have fit it into. Mm-hmm. But it turned out the director of this movie didn't make any other good movies. 
but nobody really cares about the director of this movie. It's not like some notable figure who, you know, we're kind of saying, this guy's really well known for one movie, and then everything else which you think is good is crap. <laughs> this guy is kind of a nobody. He's he's actually working solidly in the movie industry, but he's just yeah. not making good movies. So They're my, successful. Right. Uh, they're, they're, they usually uh, make money. So, Steve, remember, we've been it's been a long time since we've done this. Mm-hmm. I'm going to say the movie, and then we're going to cut to the trailer. Ready? Okay. So, so the first movie on our list is... King of Kong, A Fistful of Quarters. Ready, go! I don't drink, I don't smoke, I don't do drugs. I play video games. It's a constant drive to be the best at something. When you want your name written into history, you have to pay the price. The fact of the matter is, Bill is the best classic arcade gamer of our era. I've probably seen Steve with tears in his eyes more than any other guy I know. Oh, he's just come up short in a lot of things in his life, and I just think, nobody wants to do that all the time. Donkey Kong, without question, is the hardest game. That's a tough machine. People think that the machine is possessed. The average Donkey Kong game doesn't last a minute. It's absolute brutality. The mysterious player from the West Coast, Steve Weeb, is here. He could beat it if he... He'd have to have a really good game. You want to put a score up, you're competing against everybody in the world. It's not even about Donkey Kong anymore. He's a very devious person. He works things out to his ends very well. Oh, Billy Mitchell always has a plan. <sighs> world Record Headquarters can I help you. Well, maybe they'd like it if I lose. I gotta try losing sometime. No matter what I say, it draws controversy. It's sort of like the abortion issue. Beat. Okay, and All we're right. back. <laughs> now we're back. Okay. Yeah. All right, so Steve, here's what the facts. All right, King of Kong. Okay. Yeah. It was released August 19th, 2007. Mm-hmm. It's hard to believe. That's 14 years ago. My goodness. Um, it runs only a very, qu- very quick uh, one hour and 19 minutes. I'm adding something, and that is the tagline. The tagline. Yeah. Don't get chumpatized. (laughs) (laughs) We'll explain that uh, a little bit more later. This was written and directed, well, as much as it can be written and directed. um, It was was directed by uh, Seth Gordon. Seth Gordon has directed, as we mentioned, a couple of Hollywood movies, most of which have been pretty successful, but are crap. Yeah. Um, uh, Four Christmases, Horrible Bosses, which there's there's some fun stuff that they ad-lib yeah. into, but it's not great. Identity Theft uh, and Baywatch, the less we say on that, the better. He did do another documentary called Freakonomics, oh. which was pretty good, but it's <coughs> well, borrowing then, from the book. So does that mean, though, but if he's made another good movie, does that mean that I've already failed? Because <laughs> I didn't no, know. No, because he, he borrowed from the book. Well, you know what? I'm okay with if he's... If it he, was, and it, yeah. 
It's a documentary. It's not like he adapted, you know. Well, so King of uh, Kong is a documentary we have failed to mention. Um, yes. What I'll say is I don't care if he actually made another good movie. It's mm-hmm. just a great opportunity to talk of about King of Kong, A Fistful of Quarters. Yeah. Steve, I want to ask you, did this movie get nominated for any Oscars? Zippo. I thought it did <laughs> for some reason. I think the subject matter alienated the Academy, and that's why it didn't get an it didn't get an Oscar nomination. I think if it got released last year on Netflix, it would have been nominated for an Oscar. I think so, yeah. but I, th- I think they're more broad minded. <clears throat> this this show, to make it clear, this movie does not advance, no. you know, uh, social justice in any way. No. This is about a bunch of interesting characters. It made about um, six hundred seventy-seven thousand, which I don't think is bad for a documentary. I thought it was more successful uh, than that. Interesting. Well, probably restricted to art house releases. This movie would have been a hit on Netflix. I really believe so. If this movie came out I'm on Netflix, it's not on I Netflix. think it would have been a much bigger hit. If I think it would have been a much more popular movie if it came out on Netflix. I think it would have kind of had that Tiger King life. Maybe not right. as a big a deal as Tiger King, right. but I think a lot more people would have seen it's it. It's not as salacious as Tiger no. King, but it is it's, it's dram- it has a dramatic propulsion that is yeah. incredibly admirable it was released by this company um i i forgot the name i just yeah. rewatched it last night uh but it's a division of time warner so it's not like they didn't have some juice going behind it and it's mostly shot on lo-fi videotape this is not like a pretty movie to watch. No, did you notice? The, the, you're absolutely right. The video quality—it right. looks like a couple of kids made it. There are some documentaries that you know just you know visually expand the world. Most documentaries you... now are shot on high def video, if not 16 millimeter film, and are visually mm-hmm. stunning mm-hmm. and look like cinematic movies. This is not that. This looks like a guy never made a movie before mm-hmm. and struck gold. But you know what? What? This format works for the subject matter. Absolutely. So, are you done with the facts? Yes. Can I ask you a question? Yeah. Steve, did you like the movie? Loved it. Great. Tell me why. I loved it. This movie has all of the the um, the drama of a good primetime soap. Yeah. And yet, it, it reveals uh, you know people's fallacies, vanities, weaknesses. Mm-hmm. This movie has everything. Yeah. Yeah. So let me talk about what the movie's about real quick. I'm gonna do this as fast as I can. But keep in mind, guys, I'm out of practice. Um, this movie's about a man named Steve Weeby. He is a high school math teacher in Seattle or somewhere in Washington State, yep. I believe. Um, he's also, I think, he used to be an engineer, or something for the Boeing company, and he got let go. They, his dad, wanted him to be. Oh. Um, an engineer, and maybe he did get yeah. he did he he does get laid off in yeah. the course of this movie. This is a largely unremarkable man, but a family man, a decent man, a kind-hearted man, not an assertive man, a mild-mannered man, who happens to in his garage be one of the greatest Donkey Kong arcade players <laughs> in the entire world. I'm not kidding. Like this guy. You know, he's unremarkable in every way, but he's got this one talent. He has a Donkey Kong machine in his garage, and one day, and he's desperately trying to beat these world records. He knows he's good. He knows what the world records are. This is how the movie starts. And the movie starts where he video records himself playing Donkey Kong so that he can send these tapes into the people that tally and keep track of the Donkey Kong high scores. And he makes the world record. He gets like a million points. And he sends it into the... What's the company called, the arcade company that... uh, Twin Galaxies. He sends it to the Twin Galaxies company, which are basically the gatekeepers of all the scores and tallies of all the old classic arcade games. The reason that they are the gatekeepers 
nobody else ever thought yeah. to be. <laughs> so we're going to talk about this. These are all men, by the way, mostly unmarried. You will not see yeah. a woman except yeah. a, one woman complaining about her, her husband's obsession Let with me tell this. you something. Steve Wiebe <laughs> is the coolest guy of them all, and that is should tell you yeah. something, because he is, he's not cool at all, not in the traditional <laughs> sense, but he's certainly a hero. He's the hero of this movie. He sends his tape into Twin Galaxies, and at first it's widely accepted that he has broken the world record. Um, he's kind of a fixture on the local news, but then something occurs and here's the deal. Twin galaxies has a guy who's kind of their celebrity arcade player. Their success is kind of contingent on the fact that if if they're the movie company, if they're the producers, they've got a famous actor. So they got this guy and he previously before Steve Weeby held the world record for Donkey Kong, as well as numerous other video games. And in the classic era of arcade video games, he was the most famous arcade video game player on the planet, and his name is Billy Mitchell. Now, Billy Mitchell, his fame is directly tied to uh, Twin Galaxy's success, right? So there's kind of this thing where... I don't think he's actually a member. No, no. But he he has ties. Yeah, and Twin Galaxies needs him. Very close ties. Twin Galaxies needs him. Absolutely. He's kind of their mascot. Yes. And what ends up happening is because of or the, was or yeah, was, and yeah. because of the pressure that Billy Mitchell puts on Twin Galaxies, they decide that through various reasons uh, that we can get into later, maybe that this tape could be fraudulent, that this high score could be fraudulent, and they don't count it. They discredit Steve Weeby's score, and what they tell him is that you have to come to Twin Galaxies, to which is an arcade, and beat it in person in front of everyone. And because Steve Weeby is a hero, he's Shane, he's a man of his word, he's a man of honor, he decides to travel to Twin to Twin Galaxies, which I don't know how far it is from where he... It's across the country. Yes, it was on the it's East Coast. It's in New Hampshire, right. Yes. He travels across the country to not only beat... Uh, to not only beat the highest score of Donkey Kong, but to also face down Billy Mitchell, who will never show. He, he, he never shows. Now, he takes two trips to the East Coast, yeah. one in about the middle of the movie and one at the very end, which so, is down in Florida. And, these, and yeah. these are plot points, but we yeah. got to talk about, there are two people here. There's Billy Mitchell and there's Steve Wiebe, yeah. and they are opposites of one another. The only thing they both have in common is that they're not cool. <laughs> the thing that neither of them have in common is that Steve Wiebe probably knows he's not cool, and Billy Mitchell is convinced he's James Dean. Yes, Billy uh... Mitchell is a nerd. <laughs> he's a nerd who thinks he's James Dean. What he he's he's got a mullet that he also like straightens clearly with an iron that women use to straighten their hair. He is a ridiculous character. He's so ridiculous that when I was watching this movie for the second time in my life in preparation for this podcast, I couldn't determine. If when he he's clearly putting on a show for the cameras, I couldn't determine if he realized how he was going to be portrayed. According to him, he did not realize he would be portrayed as the villain of this movie. And if that is true, he has about the least self-awareness I've ever heard <laughs> in my life coming from anyone. He is a complete and utter douchebag. He says things like, you know, I'm not God, but, you know, he, <laughs> he, he clearly thinks he's close to God. Anyone who says I'm not God thinks they're not too far off either. <laughs> and this guy, he's just an utter douchebag. And he's got all these people at Twin Galaxies kind of working on his behalf to make sure that Steve Wiebe doesn't break the score. That is kind of the idea here, but when Steve when Steve Weeby goes to Twin Galaxies, the I don't know four or five days he's there and he's spending every day there desperately trying to beat this score. 
all he does is win everybody over with his personality. I mean, it's just amazing. This movie has um, allies and rivals and and sycophants. It's Shakespearean. It is absolutely Shakespearean. It is so it's, it's so fantastic. Uh, Billy Mitchell. The funny thing about Billy Mitchell is dignity is everything to him. He he. He doesn't realize just how sinister he comes off. Even his friends say, I think one, one old woman who was, who was an ally says he's devious. No, that was his mother. <laughs> was that his mother? That was his mother, the two oh, old was people. Friend. No, no, those no, no, his... no, not, not them, not the mother and the father. The one old lady who herself had a... Um... The Cubert. No, no, it was his mother who said he's devious. It was his mother, not oh, the thought... Cubert lady. No, it was his own mother. His own well, mother said Billy is devious. Well, yeah, so these are the people yeah. who... Now, his parents both believe, you know... If somebody's breaking his record, he has a plan. They keep saying that he has a plan. Yeah. And that's another plot point. I don't know if we want to give that yeah, we away. Can. We can. The plot point is... Well, let, let's talk about what happens right before then. Okay. Okay. So, okay. so, he, he, so Steve Weeby goes and well, he... Well, let's go, let's go back for, right, even please, further. Please. Billy Mitchell has this one ally... Yeah, back in 1982, I think I think he said Time Magazine or Life Magazine. He did was this in huge, life. Was like it was huge spread on some of the best uh, players in of all world. time. Yeah. he made his his uh, reputation on that 1982 score. Mm-hmm. 1982, he hasn't broken it since. Yeah, you know he's come close, but he hasn't. He has this one ally who he actually who Billy Mitchell exposed as lying about his score, mm-hmm. and ever since then he has been the, you know uh, a, a kind of hanger on yeah. w- w- with with Mitchell, and it's funny because at the end you find out you know uh, Weeby being so uh, you know this is he seems like he's just this model of integrity and and uh, he winds up winning him him over too. Uh, I thought that was really interesting, but so um, we got to get to the, the the whole thing about the plan, right? Steve Weeby goes to Twin Galaxies and he once again sets the world high score. He he doesn't break a million points, but he sets the world high score in front of everybody, and right. they say, "Okay, he set the world high score." And here's what's really funny: <laughs> Billy Mitchell, the the piece of human garbage that he is, <laughs> get a real part of the reason Steve Weeby's score was discredited is because he sent it in on tape. There's more to it than just that. Apparently, his arcade machine was given to him by an enemy of Billy Mitchell. Mr. Awesome. Yeah, Mr. Awesome. A guy named uh, Roy Schultz, who is a real character. And he set a (laughs) missile command record that was discredited largely by (laughs) Billy Mitchell, so now he's Billy Mitchell's lifelong enemy. This is is so wonderful. I mean, they got to make a movie out of this. Yeah, so everybody at Twin Galaxies... (laughs) essentially says we can't really trust this tape it's got to be done in person they even send two of the people from um twin galaxies twin galaxies or to, somebody who's, to who's affiliated yeah, with yeah, it to weeby's house to look at his arcade to his machine house. like they're feds like they're feds yes. i mean but they're we just too, want to uh, inspect this but they're just and, nerds uh, yes. that's all they are so steve weeby <laughs> actually sets the high score again in person at twin galaxies and it's largely accepted and when he does that Billy Mitchell sends in a videotape. The very thing he said couldn't that be trusted. That, that very weekend. That very weekend. And the very thing he said could not be trusted, <laughs> which is a score of him breaking a million points. But here's the deal. The videotape is clearly a fake. It's clearly <laughs> a cheat. Like there are jump cuts in which like the score just randomly like gets larger. It's obviously a lie. And what's incredibly infuriating, and I, I kind of say this – this entire movie is a microcosm of the injustice of history. <laughs> Everybody at Twin, Twin Galaxies just accepts it. And they just say, okay, 
It's a good high score. To be fair, the head of Twin Galaxies does question him about that, but only in the most deferential way. Yeah. Uh, Billy, you know, there is one point yeah. where there's a, there's, a, there's a hit on the tape, and all of a sudden we see a different score. Could, could you kind of help us out with that? So we have to talk about this. <laughs> there's a cult of nerddom here. Everyone here is a hardcore nerd, yes. and Billy Mitchell is their king. He is the guy they think is cool. That they thinking he is cool makes him think he is cool. And because he thinks he's cool and they think he's cool, they feel cooler in proximity to him. I mean, he is the light. But isn't that isn't that the nature of the very nature of power? Yeah, exactly. You know? He has power in this incredibly small community of nerds. He is their king. And all they want is for him to succeed. They don't want yes. another person who's not affiliated with them to come and take the throne. Because in their Whatever glow they get from him will be diminished. <laughs> One of the most fascinating points mm -hmm. in this whole movie is this character called Brian Koo. Yeah. Okay? Now, while Steve uh, we Weeby is working on, you know, uh, breaking the record, not only breaking the record, but getting something called a kill screen. Yeah. A kill screen, really quickly, that's the end of Donkey Kong. You have played as far as you can. Most arcades have an ending. This does not. It just puts up a kill screen. That means you have done as you've gone yeah. as far as you can. It's like a glitch. <laughs> well, this guy, um, uh, Brian Coon, he is a, a Billy Mitchell sycophant. Yeah. He, he, he well... I have a question for is. you. He's Let me give you a question. He's my a first question. type. My first question yeah. is: Is Brian Q the uh, physical incarnation of Waylon Smithers? Yes, <laughs> and I was gonna, I was going to go further than that. It's funny you said that. Yeah. I think he is in love with him. The same way, uh, uh, not the same way the rest of them are. No, the I mean way the Smithers, same way Waylon Smithers yes. was with Mr. Burns. Yes, we'll just leave it there. <laughs> okay, okay. This guy. He's kind of sad. He he himself, Brian Q, is a gamer. He was one of the two guys who went to Weeby's house, went yeah. across the country yeah. to dig up evidence that maybe this to high intimidate score... his wife. Imagine yes. your wife enters the door, and instead of two intimidating Don Draper-looking feds, are these two nerds <laughs> who think they're intimidating Don Draper-looking feds. I mean, here's the thing about this movie. Let's let's go on something larger and bigger. It's yes. it's it's self perception versus reality. Yes. These guys, most of them, have a perception of themselves that I do not think fits with the reality <laughs> of how others see them. And there's a really important character in this movie that I remember when I saw it with my dad, he loved this guy, and it was Steve Weeby's best friend. Steve Weeby's best friend is not a nerd. He seems to be a successful businessman, a kind of a cool guy. The big stocky guy. The big stocky, yeah, kind yeah. of a cool guy. Mm -hmm. And this guy's observations about this community of people are so <laughs> right on. He just like... You know, this entire community is so um, insular, right? They have no, they have nobody from the outside with a perspective on them. All their perspectives are inwards going out, right? That this is the one guy in the movie who's kind of, every time they're doing something so obviously ridiculous, he's like, well, that clearly doesn't make sense. Like, he's the one guy calling them out. But the point is, um, you know, this Brian Koo character, all of these people, they just... They think of themselves, whether as rock stars or, you know, celebrities, like the guy who set the Missile Command score. He can't believe Mr. Awesome. He can't believe he's not a celebrity for this. He couldn't understand why people don't care that he set the Missile Command high score. And he's, so, he's, he's clearly jealous of Billy Mitchell and 100%. wants to take him down. Uh, Brian Q is a, is a perfect example of, you know, this, this is kind of sad never was. Yeah. Somebody who... 
you know, he, he did come close. He had yeah. one of the highest scores of Donkey Kong, but it was, it was like almost half of yeah. what uh, the top players were. While um, Steve Weeby is, is, is um, trying to get that high score at, at uh, this place called Fun Stop, the yeah. sort of official arcade uh, of nerd Galaxies. hangout. Yeah. yeah. He, all of a sudden, he talks to Billy Mitchell. Yeah. And then he starts trying to gather people around him. First mm-hmm. off, he, he sits over Steve we- uh, Weeby's shoulder. The whole time. Clearly to try, probably to try to, to rattle him. To intimidate to him. To intimidate him. Just a little he nerd? is the least intimida- yeah. <laughs> <laughs> intimidating person. That doesn't work. So he, he tells everybody in, hey, there's a possible kill screen uh, for Donkey Kong over here. You want He wants everybody to, to mass around him so that he blows it and protects Billy Mitchell's score and gives him the chance, maybe in one day in the future, of hitting the kill score himself, which he has delusions of grandeur of, of happening. By the way, one of the great lines of this movie occurs in this sequence where all these people are now gathered around Steve Weeby, who said that he was running out of steam until all the people came around him, (laughs) which gave him a second wind from the adrenaline. Koo, the guy, Koo, what's his first name, Steve? Brian. Brian Koo is talking to the camera, and he's talking about how much he wants to be the guy to get to the kill screen, because he'd be the first person ever at Fun Zone to get a kill screen. And he's saying, you know, he goes, you know, I don't know, maybe, you know, Steve's doing well right now, but, you know, he could get a bad barrel. You know, the pressure could get to him. And then there's a noise in the background. He goes, well, sounds like he just cleared another stage. But uh, you know, <laughs> as, he's, as he's rooting for Steve Weeby's demise, he can literally hear Steve Weeby <laughs> succeeding in the background because he knows the game so well. He goes, you know, he, goes, you know, he, could, you know, he could get hit with a hammer. Oh, oh, yeah, no, he just cleared another level. <laughs> I mean, so, but, but he said oh, maybe, the, maybe the crowd could, uh, you know, unscrabble him. It, here's another question. Yeah. What... what um, on this movie, where do you rank the sneer factor? Because, let's face it, this movie... The sneer factor? The sneer factor. What does that mean? It invites you to look down on a lot of these people. Yeah. And in a way, it's kind of unfair. You know? The movie was made to, to, to um, you know, for a good guy and a bad yeah. guy. Steve Weeby, he really isn't that big a nerd. He played football. He played... Mm-hmm. He was a fine baseball yeah. player, but that he kind of struck out. He played the piano... Played one of the first yeah. grunge bands, but they never went anywhere. He's got he he has Mr. Silver Medal written all over him. Yeah, okay. A good way of Billy it. Mitchell's probably not the big monster, but he it was edited to be so. You know, Billy Mitchell's an Olympic gold medal winning athlete from 1975 who wears his gold medal every day, every day da- since in 2020. Yes, every right. day since. Even yes. far where you have to ask him what the gold medal is so that he can explain it to you, right? Because you don't even know who he is. Um, here's what I'll say. This movie's far more anthropological than that. You're right. What this movie is right. doing is saying that small, tight-knit communities are great for people who would not have a community otherwise, but don't think for a moment that small, tight-knit communities are completely virtuous. So there's a notion that I think um, we're going to get political for a second. That, uh, and this is not political on my part. I, I'm a amateur, amateur historian. I read tons of history. It's my other great passion in life. I think people on this podcast know by now. And it's this notion that small-scale, almost tribal societies are virtuous in nature and kind to one another. And that is not the case. Humans are humans. And even in the smallest-scale societies, a power structure will develop that can be incredibly unjust. That's what makes this movie so fascinating. You're, you're, yeah. you're, you're so right. It's a microcosm. You could e- very yeah. easily say it's a microcosm. Um, and, and yet, 
it's amusing because uh, what's the old the old saying um the 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 uh the fight was so vicious because the stakes are so low yeah you know if you have two two starving dogs gnarling over a piece of bone they'll fight to the death you know right uh None of them had the guts to fight to the death, but they do their version of it. And there is a kindness to this community as well because Steve Weeby wins them all over. They all end up liking Steve. They all realize that there is a possible champion who is kind. Yes. It's kind of like, you know, the ideas. They've been worshiping at the altar of a, of a cruel king who <laughs> treats them cruelly, and yet they still bask in his glow only to find the white knight, uh, so to speak, who not only is is talented and just, uh, but also kind. And that's what they get with Steve Weeby. They get the man they always wanted Billy Mitchell to be and didn't even realize it. Yeah, uh, yeah, who, who do their souls uh, a hell, hell of a lot better. One, one of the great moments is at the end of the movie where uh, Billy Mitchell's um, business partner, main cohort, main mm-hmm. advocate, is talking about Steve Weeby to the camera while sitting next to Billy Mitchell. Mm-hmm. And he says, you know, not only do I have 100% of faith that that Steve Weeby's, you know, tapes are all valid and that he is the great Donkey Kong player that he said he was. He goes, but I'm also just so much more impressed with him as a man. And he's saying all these kind words. And then they ask Billy Mitchell, what do you think of him? And he goes, I don't know his situation well enough. And then he <laughs> glares at his friend. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, he, he stares daggers at his friend. Yeah. It's interesting. I, I looked up this up on Wikipedia, and apparently both uh, Weeby, uh, Weeby and Mitchell say that it was misleadingly edited, that they were actually friendlier. I probably shouldn't say that because it kind of deflates yeah. <laughs> some of the passion of the movie, that they're a little bit friendlier than, than... I don't see how that's possible because they seem like... At least Mitchell seems like he really has it in for Weeby. Weeby wants to... What, see, Weeby just seems to want a they fair shake. They may not have been friendlier, but they may have been embarrassed by how petty it seemed. <laughs> Uh, that could be. You see what I mean? That they, absolutely could I be. I think it's probably more likely it really was as petty as it seemed, but they don't want people to realize how petty they were about Donkey Kong. <laughs> you know, the funny, the, the, the one, yeah. an, an, another thing I got to point out yeah. is a, a slap of fa- a slap in the face of reality that is delivered by Weeby's family. His, his wife sees this for what it is. Yeah. Okay. She's a little impatient with it. But she's very supportive and kind. Eventually, she 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 yeah. is. She yeah. she's much more than a lot of people. Although, Weeby himself says, eh, "I don't know how much she likes me being away from the family." But even more remarkable are two scenes. One when he's near the beginning, when he's making this uh, run yeah. at getting the high score, and his and his son, his small son, couldn't be more than three or four, yeah. is screaming at him, "Don't play Donkey Kong." Stop playing Donkey Kong. He wants well, his do you attention. Remember, no, don't you remember what his son needs? He needs his diaper change. He needs his, son, he needs his dad to wipe, wipe his, his butt. butt. He literally yeah. says, wipe my butt. <laughs> but the fact is, I mean, and it, and it really kind of, at one point, you could, you could hear a little harshness in his tone when he said, yeah. just, you know, stop. Yeah. And later, near the end of the show, uh, Twin Galaxy's ultimate, fan, uh, ultimate high is being the recognized uh, keeper of all these scores. And that's going to be verified by the Guinness Book of World Records, who near the end calls him and says, we want you to put seven uh, titles uh, of uh, classic arcades. And they are just, they just go crazy. They, they, they love this. Um, Weeby finds out about this. And on his trip down to Florida, he's talking with his daughter about the importance of how important it is to get in the book. And his daughter, who was, what, six, seven yeah. maybe? He says, yes, some people ruin their lives to get into it. 
<laughs> and that 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 puts shivers down my my spine. And and, and as 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 a huge epic feel that this has in yeah. this tiny, right. petty, small world, she is a slap in the face of reality that. You're not saving people, you yeah. know. You're not creating great art. Yeah, um, it's wonderful that you have a, a pursuit. That it's great you have something you're passionate about. But let's let's uh, keep priorities here. It's also just one of these things where most of us are pretty average, and even if it was Donkey Kong, any one of us would love to be the best at the world in something completely irrelevant. It wouldn't even matter. Even just snatching nickels off your elbow, yeah. somebody, you know. If you were the legitimate best in the world at anything, you would be very protective and proud over that fact. And this movie works on so many levels because there are so many great characters. And back to, like, the community aspect to it, um, you know, the guy who runs, who created Twin Galaxies, his name is Walter. You know, he's just as much of a nerd as the rest of them. But at one point he says, he goes, I don't even need this anymore. He goes, I just do it for them. He's like, because they would have nothing if it wasn't for (laughs) Twin Galaxies. He's like, I could step away from this in a heartbeat, which you would think, no, you can't. But he claims he he could. He's the one who's in the Billy Mitchell camp and and, and allows this what looks to be a clearly doctored tape. And he says, okay, that's the new one. So the very day that Weeby breaks the record. Yeah. He doesn't get it because of this is crummy yeah. tape, but you're right. There's redemption for him. Yeah, I think somebody mentions that that we uh, at one point somebody mentioned, yeah, this is your redemption because you did it live. No, it, it's redemption for the, the guy ahead yeah. of Twin uh, Galaxies. Yeah, who now you know sets aside, you know, right? The the, the, the what the 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 uh, 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 I'm, I'm blanking here. The, the edict adulation. of the king. The edict of the king yeah, that yeah. I am number one. Said, yeah. No, you know what. This guy's got the integrity. Yeah, at the end of the movie, Steve Weeby wins everybody over yeah. instead of uh, instead of Billy Mitchell. And the thing about this guy, his name's Walter, is, you know, so one of the things Steve Weeby's best friend, the cooler guy, says about Steve is that he never asserts himself. And if you caught it at the end of the movie, after Steve has won everybody over, they're doing this big congratulations ceremony for Steve just for being a great guy, for coming out there and doing everything that he was asked to do by this ridiculous video game community <laughs> of which he's not really a part. And Walter says, you know, we'd like to bring Steve Weeb up here. And Steve yeah. goes, hey, can you say it again? Weeby. And it's the first time you see Steve assert himself. He is asserting himself. And, and even though at, at first it felt, the first time I saw it, it felt, you know, a little like uh, you want to do this over so that you can have this record, you know, no, I saw it you're as pronouncing a, I saw it, it as, as more like, no, say my name correctly. That is, yes. He has learned to assert himself and ask ask what he wants. And isn't that the, isn't that the, there's the nothing, key to happiness? There's nothing is more disrespectful than somebody calling you the wrong name over yes. and over. And he's saying, no, you say my name correctly. Yeah, please say it over. Say my name correctly. And, and, then, and then Walter's kind of caught back. Like, oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Yeah. And then at the very end of the movie, Walter sends Steve a letter in which he mm-hmm. apologized for how they all treated Steve. Yes. You know, so there's clearly a, a reckoning of the soul. So I'm going to get to the, the end of this movie. I'm going to spoil it. Steve eventually breaks the record. Yes. Steve becomes the number one recognized Donkey Kong player in the world. He I, breaks a million points. He breaks a million points. I do get the feeling that this occurred after the movie was done. The movie was preparing to be like the hero's journey, which the hero ultimately fails, but is proven as a man. And the way they tack it on at the end makes me think that this happened right before the movie was released. They get, they get, they they do text cards, yeah, with a big but, and then yeah. they go back to the movie. We, yeah, you you gotta assume that this movie was about to get released, and then he broke 
the world record yeah. and they had mm-hmm. to include it. Now, something I want to add also is that it, it was, if you go online and do the research, it proves out Billy Mitchell was a cheater. Yes. That he was actually cheating. He was using something called an emulator, which is basically a computer software of the game to clearly doctor his scores. And the Twin Galaxies community completely disowned him. And now they're actually suing one another. Yeah, I, I read that he, uh, Billy Mitchell filed a lawsuit of defamation against Twin Galaxies for not accepting and it. And now they have uh, countersued. countersued. And the funny thing is that <laughs> Billy Mitchell actually has to pay their uh, Twin Galaxies law fees in ca- <laughs> if they win. If they win, uh-huh. he has to pay their law fees. Um, so let's just let's do um, some, some questions here. I don't really have any questions for you. I just was more curious. What do you think this movie is really about? Uh I think I think it invites the audience to kind of at the beginning kind of look down on the subjects. Yeah. Like I can't believe they Yeah. Ultimately, you know, it, it's about striving. Yeah. You know, it, it really is about striving, mm-hmm. but it's smart enough to keep a perspective. Yeah. You yeah. you can have a distance. If these people if, if these people were Olympians, this this movie wouldn't be as interesting, I think. Okay, let's do bad pitches. Bad pitches. How about this? Pixels meets Dallas. <laughs> Ooh, I like the Dallas one. What is Pixels? That's a, that's a horrible a, 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 um, uh, Adam Sandler movie in which uh, a, a bunch of people who used to play these these classic arcade games yeah. uh, get are enlisted. In. Well, they're enlisted okay. to defend the United States against all of these. Uh, Basically, they're, they're aliens that are just like Pixels or gotcha. just like all the classic arcade games. Okay, mine is a little uh-huh. different. Mine is Mr. Smith Goes to Washington <laughs> meets Grey Gardens. Oh. So if you guys know what Grey Gardens is, it's a very famous documentary yeah. about Franklin Roosevelt's or Eleanor Roosevelt's cousins yeah. who live in a dilapidated manor. Oh, I thought it was the, the movie uh, uh, Jacqueline Kennedy's. Wasn't oh, sorry, Kennedy? you're right, you're right. Yeah, well, I'm mistaken. It's Jacqueline, uh... it's Jacqueline Kennedy's cousins. Yeah. These women are clearly mentally ill, They, <laughs> but they're allowed to live in this kind of dilapidated mansion, okay? Yeah. My point is this. There's a lot of undiagnosed and unchecked <laughs> autism in this movie. There's a lot of spectrum <laughs> behavior. A lot of these guys are very clearly on the spectrum. I do not mean that as an insult. I just mean it as the truth. Like the referee, there's two guys in particular, like the one who, who judges all the tapes, mm-hmm. who, by the way, resigned from uh, the, the fallout, the scandal of all of this. Uh, <laughs> he resigned from Twin Galaxies as their official tape uh, judger. Well, isn't he the one who said, you know, integrity is everything. I'll, and I'll I, defend integrity till I and die I, or and something. And to like me, that. the way I think of it is that he knew that tape, that Billy Mitchell tape was a fake. And... Oh. And he didn't want to admit it. He was the one who brought allegedly. Up, let's say allegedly. Yeah, allegedly, <laughs> he was the one who brought the problems with it, but was pressured by Walter to bringing it in. Mm-hmm. And I think once it was proven as a fake, I think for him, he lost total faith in this one. Cra- this is a guy who knows where he lives, maybe in his mother's basement, right? <laughs> Who's watching hundreds of videotapes, just verifying high scores. He's yeah. clearly on the spectrum. I mean, this nobody else could do such a thing. So the, the, the first impulse is to say these people need to get alive. Yeah. But you know what? This is there their is life. a life. This, this is, is their a, life. And if it, it, it gives them passion. Thank they feel God, strongly about it. Thank God for it. I will tell mm. you this. I had an, an uncle, beloved uncle, my father's brother, who was schizophrenic, that, that my father took care of my entire life. Um, if only he had something to dedicate his life to. 
the way these guys have. Now, they're not schizophrenic, but the point is, without this, and this is what Walter knows, without this, they may have nothing. They This gives them community and purpose. But it's funny how this guy, his purpose is the integrity of judging these tapes. And when that's broken, he's done. Yeah. You know, he takes it that seriously. Instead of being everyone being like, well, nobody cares, dude. It's fine. Like, he was <laughs> this like, movie needs to be turned into a movie. Yeah. I think, and, and I think there were talks about it. But they the, turned it into a musical at one point. Is that right? On the stage, yeah. <laughs> I think it's a great idea. Probably off-Broadway. <laughs> I would think so. I think now they could probably put it on Broadway. It would be more popular because that's like what Broadway is looking for. Yeah. Anyways, any final thoughts on this movie? Uh, th- this movie is... Uh, um, it, it's just really... It, it's surprising how enjoyable. However much you may feel a little repulsive, repelled by the characters yeah. at first stick with it you'll get to really admire some yeah. and yeah snicker at some <laughs> it's very clearly a hidden gem yes okay on to our Absolutely. next movie steve our next movie was your pick uh-oh uh we'll get into it in a second but that movie is the thing the thing something. For 100,000 years, it was buried in the snow and ice. Now it has found a place to live, inside, where no one can see it, or hear it, or feel it. I know I'm human. Some of you are still human. This thing doesn't want to show itself. It wants to hide inside an imitation. It'll fight if it has to, but it's vulnerable out in the open. It takes us over. And it has no more enemies. Nobody left to kill it. And then it's one. You guys gonna listen to Gary? We can beat one of those things! Beat. Now. There we go. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, it's uh, okay. We're gonna, keep, we're gonna keep that in, by the way. We gotta, we, we gotta, we gotta, um, I, I gotta that hit in. that beat. I saw this movie when it first came out. It was released in a June... June 25th, 1982. And I loved it from the very beginning. It's a cult classic. It was a flop. Yes. Well, <laughs> it, was a, worse it was a costly that, flop. It was a virulent, there was a virulent negative reaction to this movie. It wasn't ignored. Yeah. It was actually condemned. Yeah, and we'll get into, yeah. we'll get into that and why I yeah. think uh, that condemnation was unfair and, and irrelevant to me. But you know what? If, if, if John Carpenter happens, to, happens upon this, uh, uh, this podcast, yeah. He's going to be complimented that I, you know, how, how much I adore the thing. Yeah. He's going to be really insulted that I think everything else he's ever done was crap. <laughs> okay, what's John Carpenter made? Crap. <laughs> what's he, he's made? He, his, he, I think his feature film debut was actually... Um, I got to Google. Uh, I got to see the film market. Dark. Uh, that might actually have come later. It was actually a movie that they based... They actually turned into the movie Alien. Steve, he Dark. made Halloween. Yes. A piece of crap. Okay. Before he made that, it was, it was Assault on 13, which was... He made Starman. 
You don't like Starman? It's an E.T. knockoff. Okay? Sure. That was the closest thing he did uh, to professional-grade movie making. It wasn't a disgrace, but it wasn't that good. Escape from New York? Ugh. Okay. Big Trouble in Little China. Ugh. Okay. Village of the... No, that's not good. I was going to say Village that of the That was really Damned. bad. Okay. Some in the Mouth like, of Madness. Some people like John Carpenter's Vampires. I know there's a there's it's, a cult around that. Roger movie. Ebert thought it was a great movie and should have been not uh, Woods been nominated for Best Actor. Roger Ebert was on crack at that point. Is the only <laughs> conclusion I can come to. And not that not that yeah. James Woods was terrible. It, it seems like a really crappy movie to have to get involved with to pay the bills. And he he chewed the scene the right way, but it's such. Everything Carpenter does is low-rent, bad, and amateurish. Even when he hits on a decent story like Assault on 13, a real director, a good director, could have really uh, You know who I feel that, that way about? Who's that? Brian De Palma. I think he's low-rent, cheap, and amateurish. But, we'll, but here's my point. Oh, there will be people, I so disagree there will be that. lots and lots of people who uh-huh. virulently disagree with my take on Brian De Palma. Me I'm, being one of them. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't care one iota about uh-huh. John Carpenter because those kinds of movies are not my kinds of movies. Uh-huh. I know... That there is a cult out there that would burn you alive for saying this. Oh, absolutely. You know I mean? Absolutely. I may have to hire security. I would bet that my good friend and other podcast partner on my other podcast, Shameless Plug, um, <laughs> uh, Full Dusty Jacket, a literary podcast for gentlemen, Sean Jones, would probably disagree with you. I can just bet he loves John Carpenter. There is virtually no movie you can defend as as any of his movies uh, were in the same class as the I thing. think Halloween is going to be the one that people are going to have the best points of contention against you. Here's the thing. I've never seen Halloween. Yeah. I can't make that claim. I just know that when you're debating someone about this, right. they're going to re- your toughest argument is going to be against Halloween. The, the acting is so bad in Halloween. Mm-hmm. Um, some, of the, some of the directing, there are some moments, I, I, I grant yeah. you, there, there are some pretty, pretty good moments in that movie. Yeah. But most of that movie is bad. Really bad acting. There's a few. There's a few moments where he, um, Michael Myers, stabs somebody on a wall, and he and he leans back and he tilts his head like he's appreciating a work of art, you know. And I thought that was kind of neat. I thought that was kind of neat. Yeah, but it doesn't it. erase the horrendous acting in that movie. Uh, it, 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 I, I didn't think it was very. It, it, yeah. That and Starman come the closest uh, to to uh, achieving mediocrity. But uh, in the mouth of madness makes no sense. And again, it's not like the guy can't achieve every once in a while kind of a a good scare. Mm-hmm. Escape from L.A. was a, a grotesque uh, mutant of from Escape from New York, which mm-hmm. was a was a little better, a little bit more reasonable. Yeah, I went back and looked at some of the movies that I hadn't seen. Uh, Escape from uh, Assault on on Thirteen. Assault on Precinct 13 is most notable yeah. for a little girl getting shot in the chest. Ooh, that's <laughs> yes. rough. It had never been, it basically never been done, and they, they seemed to think he broke some wonderful boundary, and I'm wondering, is that boundary so applaudable for breaking, you know, a, a little girl getting shot in the chest? Well, Pan's Labyrinth did it. Sorry for you, uh, Pan's Labyrinth. Very you hasn't seen that movie. That's now spoiled for you. <laughs> Yikes. Um, but the thing is different. Here, here, here are the stats. Yeah. Uh, like I said, uh, released in the summer of 1982. Um, unfortunately, it was released about a month after E.T. Mm-hmm. So you have two very different takes yeah. 
on aliens, aliens. visiting uh, America yeah. uh, and I mean uh, the planet, and you saw you saw which one the Americans uh, gravitated towards. Its tagline was, "Get this, the ultimate in alien terror." It's terrible. Accent on the word alien because they wanted to associate it with the movie Alien, and yeah. there are some we're gonna connections. Ta- we're going to talk about that. Okay, and remember. If I'm not mistaken, one of the movies that, that Carpenter did was like an hour and 15 minutes was the basis for the movie Alien. I didn't it was, know that. It was a, a very low budget. Uh, it's not They Live, is it? It's, it's Dark Something or Other, if I have my computer in front of me. I mean, I can tell you in a second. Yeah. Um, and it was like a co Dark Star. Dark Star. And uh, it was adapted, uh, at least as I, as I recall, it was adapted into Alien. It was written by a guy named Bill Lancaster. Now, Bill Lancaster, really, he did. He wrote the screenplay for um, Bad News Bears. Okay, that's good. And then a, a terrible sequel to Bad News Bears, like Bad News Bears Goes to Japan or Breaking yeah, Training. Yeah, it Goes to Japan, yeah. And he made this, and that's all. That's all he yeah. ever did. Okay. He did some video games, but that, that's it, okay? It cost $15 million, which wasn't huge. You know, it, didn't, it wasn't gigantic budget, but it was, it was a big budget. Yeah. But it only grossed nineteen million, which, if you know about grossing, you, you have to make you two, lost, and a half, two to two and a half times more. Yeah, you've lost money. Yeah, yeah, oh, absolutely lost money. Has a fantastic cast. Let me give you a, a name, a rundown of the cast of uh, cast of actors: Kurt Russell, Wilford Brimley, Keith David, Donald Moffat, Richard Masur, a very underrated actor. Richard Dicehart, David Clennon, T.K. Carter. These are all wonderful uh, uh, character actors. He assembled real acting talent in, in this movie. By the way, if you don't recognize Wilford Brimley, don't be too hard on yourself. He, he doesn't, doesn't have a mustache. He doesn't have the mustache. <laughs> don't, look, don't look for the, uh, what is it called, the walrus mustache. Yeah, he doesn't have it. <laughs> the movie was scored by the great uh, Ennio Marconi, who did all of the you know, uh, Sergio, Sergio Leone's and then uh, worked with uh, uh, Tarantino. Yeah. And finally won an Oscar for uh, Hateful Eight mm-hmm. score. And the cinematography was Dean Cundey, uh, who, who, did, who was a fantastic cinematographer. He shot the, the Back to the Future movies, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, right. you know. There was a, a lot of talent, and I, I wish I could say that is the reason why this movie seems so much better but he, and he, uh, he never worked with, uh, I don't think he worked with uh, Maraconi again, but he did work with the cinematographer. And the negative reaction to this movie was so intense. People who saw it disliked it so passionately that Carpenter was actually fired from his, he was bought out from the next film he was slated to direct. What was that, do you know? I don't remember. I, I read it That's online. But they, they, so, they wanted him nowhere near the project, and they couldn't just fire uh-huh. him outright because he uh-huh. hadn't done anything. Because, you know, you can't fire someone because another movie they did didn't, you know, do well. You've got to do something on the set of the movie you're directing. So they basically just bought him out of it. They, right. they just gave they, him enough money. They paid him to not direct the movie. <laughs> um, all right, I'm going to do a little plot, little plot summary here. This should be the shortest one I've ever done. But before I do it, Steve, what are these guys doing for a living again? Uh, it's a scientific station in Antarctica. Okay, so it's a group animal. of scientific researchers in the coldest tundras of Antarctica are visited by an alien creature that inhabits people's bodies and basically pretends to be them. And they are very aware from the very beginning that a alien-like creature has come to their station and is inhabiting people. And as a result, they all become extremely paranoid because they don't know which one of them is the alien, is the thing. And the thing, the alien, of course, takes over them all one by one. And this movie is largely about paranoia and distrust. Um, I appreciate 
that this movie from the very beginning has no mystery. There is an alien. You know right away. They know right away. They don't waste any time in this movie trying to get these guys to figure out that there's an alien in their station. They figure it out very quickly. Pretty quickly, yeah. There's not a lot of this back and forth trying to persuade somebody. They see the alien uh, basically explode out of a dog that it had been inhabiting, and right away they they basically come to grips with the fact that the alien inhabits people, and you don't know it unless you do ridiculous blood testing. Um, And as a result, they all become extremely paranoid and distrustful of one another. That's my plot summary. Here's what I want to say about the movie. When I first saw it years ago, I didn't love it. It wasn't really my thing. I don't even think I had much respect for it the first time I saw it. The second time I saw it, the greatest praise I can give it is also my big is the most damning uh, thing that I can give it, which is um, this movie would be just as good, if not better. With no dialogue. You would understand almost implicitly what was happening in this movie if it was all music and nobody talking. I really think the movie would make sense. I think it's that well made, but at the same time, that's how little the script, the actual writing, impressed upon me. Not to say the writing was bad. It's not bad. There were no lines of dialogue that stuck out to me as incredibly false or hackneyed. It just didn't... There was nothing about the script and the dialogue that really impressed itself upon me. Uh, well, those are two different things. And I think a lot of people don't get that. They yeah. made masterpieces in silent movies. Yeah, yeah. You know, you don't have to have sharp, yeah. Aaron Sorkin-style no, great comebacks. Yeah. You, you don't have to hire uh, uh, Tarantino off the books yeah. to, to jazz up the um, the dialogue. You that's a, that's a that's a curse of the Marvel if, if movies. You, they hire yeah. these these joke writers yeah. to make sure that there's fun and 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 uh, you know jokes scattered throughout the plot. This movie is very bare bones in that sense, and there's not a yeah. huge amount of character development. They hired a great set of character actors, yeah. and they fill in the I think the missing pieces. Yeah, I just want to say that if you had told if someone had said to me this movie was everything about it, and they'd be like, check this, there's no dialogue, I'd be even more interested. And part of me wants to rip this movie off a DVD, put it into my computer, and strip all the dialogue away from the movie. The problem is I couldn't isolate those tracks. Uh, if I stripped it of sound, it would be all the sound. And I think the music is obviously essential, and so are the sound effects. I think the score is fantastic. Yeah. No, I would like to see this movie with no dialogue. By the mm-hmm. way, we never did best lines from King of Kong. And I'm just going to say mine real quick. Uh-huh. Billy Mitchell... He says, you know, if there are three letters to describe me, what do you think they are? And he's pointing to his tie. <laughs> Doesn't make any he's sense. He's pointing to his tie, which is the Statue of Liberty on it. Uh-huh. And the guy, the, the guy holding the camera goes, T-I-E? <laughs> when really what he wants is USA. I forgot to mention that. But let's get back to this. I thought it was like, well, my best dialogue I quoted it was the girl. Yeah. The, yeah, the daughter right. saying, some people ruin their yeah. lives. Uh-huh. As I was thinking about the script to the thing uh-huh. not impressing upon itself right. upon me, I realized I forgot my favorite line of dialogue from King of Kong. Does that mean that you're going to have a tough time coming up with a, a, a best line for this movie? Because I have two. I have two. Yeah, hit me now. What you got? Um, the, there, there's this one great scene, and I always remember it. Mm-hmm. There is this, The special effects are remarkable yeah. in this movie. I think it is also the source of the condemnation. Yeah. No, so it literally, if you read about it, it says people applauded the special effects as much as they condemned them. Yes. Yeah. I know uh, film critics, uh, particularly my favorite, Pauline Kael, who condemned it, said that the, it was the only thing the movie had going for it. She couldn't be more wrong. Yeah. yeah. I, I think uh, the, the, the detention... 
and that's the, the, the absolute tension that ratches it up with, with every pa- uh, passing scene is remarkable, which, I, again, I can't believe Carpenter directed this. Yeah, it's so expertly made. Yeah. Um, the special effects are terrific. And there's this one scene which just blows your mind. And this, this, is, this is before computer-generated uh, 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 effects, where one character who has become the thing, he, his body becomes very obvious. It's very obvious that this guy's body uh, it's the body of the alien, and he, he, he kills over and dies. And his head slowly pulls off of his shoulders and becomes another creature with crab-like legs that come out of it. It's grotesque. It is absolutely grotesque. It's and one of the most so grotesque remarkable. movies you'll ever see. One of the characters, and this doesn't match up because that, mm. the character who says this, I don't, I don't want to ruin it, but I'm not going to ruin it. He turns and looks in astonishment and says, I don't fucking believe it. And you know <laughs> yeah. what? That perfectly encapsulated yeah. that moment because it's yeah. really, yeah. it is such a great, terrific uh, special effect. And and I thought it was hilarious. Another one was um, uh, Wilford Brimley is the first one to catch on. He's the yeah. first one who realized after seeing the dogs that this is going to be a problem. He's the, he's the doctor. He's the doctor. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and he's a researcher, and he's got this software that uh, couldn't possibly a exist. A terrible software. <laughs> yeah. It, it's, it's, it's like, it's literally being like, alien DNA matches with dog yeah. DNA. And it's like 8-bit, you know, old <laughs> Apple software. I mean, it's just Pretty like, advanced for something like that. It's total bullshit. But uh, IMDb uh, Trivia pointed out that, uh, yeah, e- even e- it would be too sophisticated to, yeah, to handle that. You but, can um, tell literally some... Some production assistant made this yeah. like fake software in five <laughs> minutes, and it's bad. Yeah, but it, but it it was very it did illustrate the point. Yeah, um, Wilfred Brimley, he's one of the first, and he goes nuts. He goes crazy. He goes he crazy. Knows that they all have to die immediately. His whole mm. thing is that none of them can escape because if they escape, they will potentially bring the alien to civilization. Yeah, and, and he, he ba- knows. And he basically tries to kill them all. He tries to strand them all in Antarctica so that they can't get out of there. He knows. Yeah, yeah. But he's also gone insane, and yeah. they don't understand. Later in the movie, well, actually, when he's being put into a shed um, uh, by Kurt Russell, who plays McCready. Um, the helicopter pilot. The helicopter pilot, yeah. He's, a, he's, a, he's one got of the few guys manly. who isn't really a scientist. Exactly, because you know? he's got to be manly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And yeah, he's tough, and, and he's he, he's obviously tougher than everybody except one, maybe yeah. two other people. Um, he says, you know, I, he say, well, Wilford Brimley says to McCready, I don't know who I can trust. Yeah. And then uh, he says, well, trust is a hard thing to come by. Yeah. Why don't you trust in the Lord? And it seems like a cynical remark. <laughs> like he doesn't really believe it. Yeah. Yeah, no. This is a movie that doesn't yeah. really believe that God is going to send help. You so, know? so can I mention something about this movie, which I found interesting? In reading about this movie, there's tons of comparisons to McCarthyism and, you know, distrust of foreigners. The AIDS crisis. AIDS. Here's my problem with all of these left-wing, and I am left-wing, bye-bye, but all these liberal readings of this movie. One of them was the alien. <laughs> right. there's actually if you're gonna read it that way then it's a justification of paranoia it's a justification of mccarthyism it's a it's a justification of distrusting your neighbors because one of them is going to destroy civilization apparently well now i am going to get political and i apologize yeah. for that but uh they called it the red scare in the 50s an invasion of the body snatchers and the, the original yeah. movie the thing came out i think in the 50s mm-hmm. early 50s when there was a red scare and there was a parent there was paranoia um, there was something to be worried about. Anyway, I just think it's funny that the, but it's the liberal take on it, uh-huh. and they don't understand 
one there of them is wa- something to be afraid you know, of. <laughs> like I'm against McCarthyism, but uh-huh. these these idiots they don't realize like don't don't say this because they were justified in the movie. Like you're, you're you the, think, the reason yeah. it's paranoia yeah. is because people start distrust humans start distrusting other humans because they don't know which one it but is. What, but one of them is the thing. That's true. They it just, is justifiable. Yeah, it it's justifiable. just that they have to distrust one another. <laughs> Like this thing is trying to inhabit all of their bodies. It's yeah. if they just trusted all every one of them, they'd all be the thing. Which, by the way, they all basically end up becoming the thing. <laughs> mostly, mostly, mostly. Um, about the special effects, I really resent. Uh, I, I some of them hold up really well. I think some they all hold up great. Yeah, I yeah. love animatronics and puppetry. I love it. I'm a huge. This is as well as as it can be done. Yeah. You well, know? no, Jurassic Park's um, the best it's ever been done. Well, that you know what it it, co- it combined, didn't it? It combined it did, animatronics. But, but, uh, there but, were in- there were yeah. instances of pure puppetry and, and right. Jurassic right. Park That's true. is the peak of it. Yeah. Um, but, but at the is, time, at the yeah. time, I think I don't think yeah. it could be could have gotten done much better. I find in that CGI, even at its most polished, is more noticeably fake than animatronics are. I loved the I loved the special mm. effects of this movie. I want to I want to give a really 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 scorching hot take, and this is by the way from a movie that I admire but don't particularly care for. Like I, I enjoyed it, I liked it more the second time. It's not one of my favorite movies or anything. I get I am completely on board and support anyone who this is their favorite movie. I'm like I get it. You know, this is a really fun, awesome, cool, well made movie. Should I brace myself? Maybe <laughs> this movie's better than Alien. It's better. Yeah. I think this movie's better than Alien. I just think it has more going for it. That is Be- high praise. That is of, very high praise. I, don't love I think Alien, Alien is. I, I, I do. I, I, I think, think it's there's more. I think the distrust amongst them. Yeah. So I was, that is the key factor. That's what ratchets up the tension. And yeah. the people who condemn the special effects, yeah. the critics who said it's all special effects, yeah. that's what they didn't get. They didn't yeah. get. That's not where the tension comes from. Yeah. It comes from the paranoia. The people, you try to guess who is and who isn't. Right. That leads to a question. You, you sound so like you I, had something I, I was going to say that basically the difference between this and Alien, I heard a phrase on another movie podcast called The Rewatchables that I really like, and they were quoting somebody. I don't remember who they were quoting. It might have actually been, um, it might have been Judd Apatow. And I believe the quote was, um, plot is what filmmakers think they want, but it's story that they need. And the point is, you can say what Alien, what happens in Alien, and that's the plot. But what's it about on a larger scale? I'm not sure anything other than horror. You clearly, you know, um, you can say what happens in the thing, but you can also say what it's really about, which is distrust. Right. You know, the the thing, the the, the alien in the thing is only a vehicle for the real purpose of the movie, which is to show a movie about people distrusting one another. And I don't think Alien has that kind of story. You're right, except um, it had... A remarkable first, and that is the hero, the ultimate hero, was a woman. Okay. And a believable woman. It's funny that you would go down this road of all Right, people. right. Yeah. Well, but, uh, well let me, I'm going to make my point in yeah. ultimately agreeing with you. Yeah. There is a scene that uh, a lot of feminists in, in Alien, that a feminist applaud, that they said is virtually non-existent in almost every movie, and it's a brand of whether a movie is kind of sexist or not, and that is there's a scene between Sigourney Weaver and uh, I think Veronica Cartwright, mm-hmm. the, the two women, the conversation they have has to do with uh, Sigourney Weaver character, Ripley, is complaining that the other character didn't obey her 
mm. when she told them to when she told him to and let the alien in the ship yeah. you know they didn't know it was the alien that movie that that conversation had nothing to do with a guy yeah it had nothing to do romantically with with or family and they didn't have to be allies Right. They weren't allies. They had an intellectual discussion about power. Yeah. Uh, it had nothing to do with romance. It had nothing to do with family. And feminists say that is the kind of uh, scene that we need that was up till then virtually unheard of That's in movies. Cool. I dig it. I thought, but you know what? What? Both those points, it's breakthrough um, female character who is plausible. Mm-hmm. And not when you try to get some model dressed up and she winds up kicking people's yeah, ass right. who are obviously stronger than her. Ripley was believable. Everything Absolutely. she did was plausible. And it's it also true of the movie Alien. Um, not as good a movie, but those are incidentals. Yeah, right. <laughs> those are, and, and, and in sense, you were right. Yeah. They're not about, that's what the movie's about. It was a terrific touch, yeah. but that's not what the movie's about. Yeah, I just, I grew up in the 90s in a very liberal town, and I don't look for things like that because I kind of already expect them. And as a result, I don't let, politics in any form shape my view on art because mm-hmm. I don't think I hate that I think that's fascist I think that viewing art through the lens of politics and the agreement of whether or not you agree with anything regarding a movie or a piece of art I think is eventually fascist and communist and I don't like it Yeah, I but I do with- understand if someone's never seen something especially if it represents them for a long time mm-hmm. I get that um, mm-hmm. I just I think at the end of the day it's like just because you saw yourself in a movie it doesn't make the movie good it doesn't make the movie well made. Mm-hmm. Um, now, now, Alien good is point. good and well made. I just think the thing. Getting back to the thing, I think the thing is better. That's that's really interesting because I never considered the thing better, even though I I, I, I named this. But you know what? You have a ter- I think you have a great point because we what do we go to the movies for? We yeah. don't go to the movies to have an electrode stuck into our nails yeah. and stimulate uh, horror, compassion. Yeah. Uh, tear jerking we go to it for stories for recognizable human behavior and yeah. you're right there's more to that in the thing than there is in alien and by the way speaking of if a woman were to say you know well, why wasn't a woman in the thing well the writers answered this question he said he didn't write any women into it because he was too afraid that if he included a female character that the studio would try to make her a love interest <laughs> and all point. he wanted to do was tell this story about distrust i didn't and know he that. Did, and he didn't want to get away from that at all and he was afraid that the inclusion of a female character would he would be forced into making her some sort of side story apart from the main story but plus he would run the risk of trying to copy uh alien so close only three years after you'd really have to make her her own character and a a plausible person beside that and if you and if she's one of the first aliens yeah. then what does that say about women's exactly. women's roles yeah. in yeah. An, an almost exclusively dominated male setting yeah. that would have been seen as sexist you could just too. Read too much into by it. the way uh technically there is one woman adrian barbeau do you know who that is i know who she is but who's yeah. she in the movie uh she plays the voice of the uh chess computer that uh, oh, cool. <laughs> so they snuck adrian barbeau's voice she was married to john carpenter at the time actually by the way i have a criticism of this movie very small one Kurt Russell not knowing how to use a blowtorch at the worst possible time. Do you remember that? Well, I thought. See, he I thought it failed it on him. It, I thought it, it failed did, on but, him. But it was so convenient. Like basically, yeah, what happens that's is true. 
he's testing everyone's blood because yeah. he puts everyone's blood into a separate beaker and then he touches it with a heated like rod basically yeah exposed wire i think exposed yeah. wire yeah. that's been heated and yeah. the alien which exists in the blood hates heat and will like explode up he's holding the petri dish in his hand <laughs> knowing that when he touches it with a heating rod the alien's gonna like spring up from it like that's <laughs> stupid then he drops the uh the stupid blowtorch flamethrower flame 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 yeah. and then he can't use it again yeah. i mean I was just kind it of... It was a little convenient. Worse, worse still yeah. is that uh, the other guy, uh, uh, McCready, has a uh, one person he sort of trusts why, for no good reason, and he's, he's paralyzed with fear. He does one of those... Yeah. Well, it's usually assigned to women. Yeah, <laughs> you know, right, he par- right. he's paralyzed with fear and he's, he's destroyed. Can that we... is a little convenient. But you know what? That, that, thing, that, that test to see if yeah. who's an alien, that blood thing... Terribly thought that out. That was good. Yeah, but also terribly thought out. Terribly thought out, but well executed. Like, I thought it was you really gotta, cool. You gotta get something really long, like a really <laughs> long pole that you're gonna heat up, so that when you touch the beaker, you're far away from it. <laughs> you don't hold it in your hands and then let it spring up on you like a like a can of worms, you know, yeah. that, you, that explodes in your face. Like, what was he thinking? I still don't even know what he did. It, it's it's funny. N- none of the other characters think th- th- this test is anything that that it'll yeah. prove that it'll you know, which adds to the more more of the sinister paranoia and the anger and the hatred. I have a question. Yes. What do we think of Kurt Russell's career? Um, un, uh, unrealized. So he's had a wonderful career, a very long career. Hollywood did not use him. He gives he gives a terrific performance, yes. a, a, a first rate leading man role. He he seems more formidable than all, everybody except maybe Keith David. Yeah. You know. What do we think of Keith David's career? Unfulfilled. Uh, absolutely. Made a huge. He living. is so. Good, he made but... a huge living in the historical documentary world. He narrates tons of historic documentaries. He's got a great voice. He has a fantastic history documentaries. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, he, oh yeah. He's all over his yeah. history channel documentaries. Um yeah. what is But it's I... cruel that he hasn't had more roles. He, he he appears in everything. He appeared in Crash. He you know, yeah. he, he appeared in a, a terrific movie that we both loved, um, you know, with uh, Russell Crowe, yeah. The Nice Guys. The problem is, yeah. especially in Hollywood, Overweight middle-aged actress, you've only got Kathy Bates taking all those roles. Yeah. Middle-aged man, middle-aged African American man, not going to Morgan Freeman, not going to Keith David. It's not fair, you no. know. He probably lost roles because every time the script read middle-aged African American male, it was just automatically assumed it was going to Morgan Freeman, which is you know a st- it's a that's a that's a comment on the state of that business, and you know that yeah. there weren't yeah. enough parts written. There, there were too many parts written where they never thought the male could be African American middle aged, and that—that's a problem with the movie industry. So, Keith I would, David could have been the lead in any number could have been of eighties action star. movies. He could yeah. have been a huge star, deserved to be. What's Kurt Russell's best movie or performance? I thought he was really good in uh, that one he made with Meryl Streep and uh, Cher, Silkwood. I thought he was good in that. He is really good in that. Uh, I'm just trying to look at his. Who had the better career, Kurt Russell or Patrick Swayze? Kurt Russell. You think Kurt Russell did? Well, Patrick Swayze had... Uh, Kurt Russell never had a ghost. Okay. He never had a movie like yeah, Ghost. That's right. He was never as big a star. No. He should have been. I think he, was, he, he I think he was far more talented than Patrick Swayze. I'm just trying to see... I think he was a he, much better actor. I don't think... Tombstone. He's got Tombstone. Tombstone. I love Tombstone. I think, I, think, ooh, <laughs> I think it's tough between Tombstone and The Thing in terms of yeah. best performance. And I would, he's such a generous actor in Tombstone because he lets Val Kilmer get away with murder because Val Kilmer steals the whole movie. Yeah, you know, outside of Silkwood, he is a badly used 
actor. Well, what he doesn't have is the clear Oscar bait movie. Every yeah. one of his movies, whether it's with, um, what he is, is he, he's basically a great actor doing very mainstream B movies. Yeah. All of his movies, if you look, Escape from New York, you know, where he's like the real guy, the thing, where he's Another like the main carpenter. actor, yeah. um, where he's the lead. Uh, what else we got? We got Backdraft. Um, he was hate, in Backdraft. Hateful Eight. Um, but yeah. anything where he's they the, got rid of him early though in that movie, unfortunately. Yeah, but anything where he's like where he's kind of you know used as the lead or advertises the lead, it's like a kind of like a postmodern B movie. It's like a director who mm. knows they're making a B movie, but in fact, it's not a B movie. It's a major studio picture. Executive executive uh, decision. That's Once a really again. good movie. He just outside of Silkwood, he really doesn't have that uh that big um. That big, you know, Oscar bait role. They didn't think of him in those terms, unfortunately. And he could have done a lot of, a lot of really good stuff. Well, he had a good life, married a beautiful woman, True. raised a family. He's probably, <laughs> he's probably not thinking he had a bad career at all. You know, most actors are just happy to work. He's he. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's true. So I'm trying to think of my best line of this movie. God, you know, I just don't have it. See what happens at the end of this movie. What do you think? That's a good question. Um, that was set up as a sequel. Should we give it, give it away? Yeah, I think they There are only two to, characters left. Yeah, I think they freeze to death and die. I like to think that. And then they discover, they, they, they discover that, and the world discovers it and incinerates everything, and uh, you know, the planet goes on. But if this movie had been a, had been a success, what would what, what happen? If this movie had been a blockbuster... You get a sequel. You get a sequel, then Keith David becomes the alien who goes... Yeah, so that's the next question. Uh, they have to incinerate themselves. If they don't incinerate themselves, if they freeze to death and one of them is the thing, that's a problem because what the thing wants is to freeze. So it his wants, body will be recovered. So his body will be recovered yes. and then he can explode out. So yeah. what they really need to do is light each other on fire. Here's the problem with that. Yeah. Um, here's a really existential question uh, yeah. that I stumbled upon again in IMDb. When you're copied... Mm-hmm. When this alien copies you and you're walking around, do you know you're an no, alien? You don't know. And the way you don't That's know. That's interesting. Here's how you don't know. I've always assumed I always assumed no. they did until I considered the question. You don't know and and I figured this out in the blood testing scene. One of the characters as he's watching his blood being tested is mm-hmm. greatly relieved to find out he's not the alien. But see, that could be just human paranoia. Oh yeah. That could you're be right. human paranoia. You're right. Like uh, at one point Keith David w- when they're summing things up, I mean how could you tell if I was an alien? Would you know? But he doesn't ask, would I know if I were an alien? Yeah, I guess you know, we don't know. But that's okay. It's good we don't know. It yeah. adds to the mystery. Yeah. The only thing I could say is, you know that line that comes from, I don't fucking believe it? Yeah. Sorry, guys. It's a spoiler alert. That, that, that character at that time yeah. was an alien. So that could indicate that he doesn't know. Yeah. Or <laughs> the, the director lost track because yeah. I heard that at, at any given point, they didn't really know who My was. view is the alien just kind of takes over you when it feels uh-huh. like it, that you are you until the alien decides to kind of like take over your consciousness. Right. Because, because it has your consciousness, yeah, Wilford Brimley, has your memories. Yeah. Wilford, has your memories. Wilford Brimley at the end is mm-hmm. all alien. Yeah. The, he's building a spaceship as yeah. Wilford Brimley, which I love, by the way. I yeah. love that the alien started to build a spaceship because <laughs> it gave the alien an intelligence instead of just yes. making him a monster, which the xenomorph, whatever that thing is called in the actual movie Alien, uh-huh. doesn't have. The, you know the original movie, uh, uh, The Thing? Mm-hmm. It's just a big carrot. <laughs> Play, played by James Arness, by the way, before okay. he made Matt Dillon. It, 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 they, they decide, the original story resembles the 1982 version. Mm-hmm. 
where they they um, you know take a human form. Yeah. But not the original one. It was just a. It was just a monster. Yeah. It was just a monster. So I. I actually like the this thing more than I like the original thing. Sure. I know that's heresy, but I. Did I, you know I that like... the remake in 2020 is not a remake? It's a prequel. But they called it the thing. I found you just. That you just odd. gave. You just. You just gave a spoiler. You should have had a spoiler alert. Why? Because <laughs> you don't find out until the very last scene that it was a prequel. Really? Oops. I. Just... I've been seeing it. Oops, sorry. That's okay. So, <laughs> no, because I probably wasn't going to see it. So people you, ask, when you're people watching it, what do you think it is? People, well, you think it's a remake. You think it's a remake. But how can you think it's a remake if the characters are different? I, I would spoil it for you if, but I will tell you if you want. Just spoil it, yeah. Go for it. You know the, um, uh, the, 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 the Swedish team. At the very beginning, yeah. there's this yeah. one, there's a remarkable scene yeah. of this helicopter following this dog. Yeah, and they're right? trying to kill the dog. They're right. shooting at the dog. Right. It's a prequel because the whole movie, which has some Americans in it, yeah. takes place in that, at that facility. Yeah, but my point is, how do you know? Why do you think it's a remake if, um, if the characters are different? Like, the, nobody's named McCready, you know what I mean, in the new movie. Right, right. Joel Egerton's not a helicopter pilot, is he? Well, uh, they do that sometimes. You usually it's a loose remake. Yeah, a, a loose so remake. So it's actually a surprise ending. The surprise ending is that it's a prequel. Oh, that's pretty cool. Yeah. I yeah. dig that. Did you like the movie? No, not as much. Now, the the lead, mm-hmm. there are, I think, a two, maybe three women, and yeah. the two women are inconsequential except for the lead, which is Mary Weinstead. Okay. Is that her name? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know Mary Weinstead. And she, she's, she, there, there's another actress. She is the female Kurt Russell. She should be bigger yeah. than she is. Yeah, you're right. She was you know? great in the third season of Fargo. I don't know if you ever saw I, that. I, I didn't see that. Mary, but she was also good. Mary Weinstead. She was also in uh, that Tarantino movie. Uh, which one? Um, she played uh, one of the um, uh, Blood, uh, the one with Kurt Russell, actually, the one with Kurt Death Russell. Proof. Death Proof. Yeah, she was. Oh, in that. I never. You know, it's funny. I never saw Death Proof. Oh, yeah. Okay, let's do bad pitches. Bad pitches. Okay, get this. All right. I kind of like my bad pitch. Okay. Invasion of the Body Snatchers mm-hmm. meets Twelve Angry Men. <laughs> that's good. That's better than mine. Uh, that's a lot better than mine because yours is actually a good pitch. And it's funny because yeah, it I, is too I, good. So no, in a way, it is so, good. <laughs> but I, I knowingly was like, I can't do a bad pitch for this movie. I can only do a good pitch. Um, and mine was, it's very uncreative, but it's Lord of the Flies meets Aliens. Alien, that's what it is. I like that. It, it, it was this movie was impossible. That's a good pitch. It's impossible to do a bad pitch for yeah. a movie that in itself probably was a bad pitch, right? <laughs> You know what I mean? Like this, this was this was a, a self-knowingly kind of B movie. That's not a B movie at all. In fact, it's expertly made. Yes. But if you're trying to describe it in a room full of people, you can't come up with a bad pitch. You have to come uh-huh. up with a good pitch. That's true. Now, but that kind of leads me yeah. in, into um, the one question that sure. is the most that is the focus of today's show. How did John Carpenter make such a good movie when all the rest of his movies were so? Embarrassing am- amateurish. Wait, again, he never. It wasn't like he didn't stumble onto some really good scenes yeah. here and there, but he never made anything like Did this. Did he ever work with that cinematographer again? Yes. So I was going to say that could have been. I, the, that's the first thing I looked up. That could have been the hint <laughs> that the cinematographer was doing a lot of the directing. He he he, um, he shot. I think he shot uh, 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 Big Trouble in Little China, and I yeah. think he shot uh, Escape from New York. By the way, there might be people telling you. That's not his only good movie. And then they would just be disagreeing <laughs> yes. with you. Oh, they would vehemently disagree yeah. with me. They're, they're, people love John. People love Mouth, The Mouth of Madness for some reason. Uh, and then another thing is like, um, you know, 
it's like the same thing. Like some people make one amazing song in their life and then they yeah. never make any other good music, but they had that. Sometimes you just have a moment of a flash of genius. And you know what? Almost nobody in the history of the world ever has one thing they ever made that everybody likes. Now, mm. everybody at this point, I think, you know, the thing is a hidden gem, but at the same time yes. is a well-known cult film. Yeah. Its reputation is clearly reversed over the years. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. Most people in their life never get a chance to do one thing that people like uh, in the arts. I don't like the term one-hit wonder because most people would kill to be a one-hit wonder. Yes. I appreciate anyone that ever creates anything that pierces through and is actually liked and beloved. I'm okay with that. I really... I, I think good for them. Well done. You've accomplished something. You were not a failure. We treat one-hit wonders like they're failures, yeah. which is crazy because they made something that people like. Yeah, the, the term one-hit wonder should not be um, derisive. It should no. not be viewed as derisive. It should be, I wish I could make something as good as the, yeah, the thing. Yeah, it should be like, congratulations. You yeah. made something that people like. Mm -hmm. I got a question for you. Yeah. Is Keith David a prick in this movie? <laughs> he, um, he's understandable. Yeah. Is it forward thinking or racist to have the, a black lead in this movie not be likable, not be like a cool guy? Is it racist or is it forward thinking that it's just humanizing him and saying he can be a prick? Because I'm not sure that would happen today. It, today, yeah. if, you, if you, I know it's funny because they didn't remake the movie, but they did. But I think it would be hard today for anyone to accept a black male lead who's kind of the foil in the way that he is in this movie. He's kind of the jerk. Yeah, he, he opposes McCready at, at almost every turn. Yeah. I read somewhere that um, there were two physically large people, Keith yeah. David and Richard Masseur, Yeah, and they both, as two actors, they got together and said, you know what, we need to have a hostile relationship. Yeah. So they kind of tried to play up, I don't know if you noticed this, but mm -hmm. um, when it's time to come pick a leader, yeah. um, Keith David tries to, to make it, and the masseur comes up with a knife and says, yeah. no way, over yeah. my dead body. And then McCready says, I think we need somebody yeah. a, little, uh, a little more even-tempered. I, I, I think this is a kind of a race-blind casting. That's how I feel. Casting. That's how I feel, and that's yeah. good. The whole point is to just let people be individuals yeah. and to not say, you know, I just don't think uh, if this movie was made again today with these actual characters, I don't think they would do it that way. I think that a black yeah. male lead would play McCready, which I'm fine with. Yeah. I have no issue with that, and that the white guy would be the would be the bad guy. But I don't think they would ever in a million years make the black guy now just an, just kind of an asshole. Well, I don't not consider like a, not Childs, like a bad person. Yeah, but he's just kind of a prick. Yeah, I, I don't consider Charles the. Uh... He's not the villain. He's not the villain. He's, no, but he's just kind of antagonistic. He's he's very antagonistic, but that's. Yeah. Uh, I, I like the fact that they gave somebody, yeah. um, gave McCready somebody who was actually really formidable. The rest of the guys, yeah. you know, that they, they don't stand yeah, a chance. Mac so, McCready so, could talk any one of so them Childs down. Childs is the only other smart guy there, basically. Yeah. He's the only, he's he's the only he's, one who's both smart and can physically execute. Yeah, he's just yeah. like McCready. Yeah. He just doesn't like the guy. They don't no, like each other. They, they don't like each other. Eventually, yeah. they, they... I think um, there's a condescending thing now, though. I think that yes. if you were a black male actor, it would be hard to find a role like that because every role would want to cast you in the most positive light. I think for the next couple of years, you're going to see this terrible trend where the only roles black people can get are of heroes yeah. and, and good guys, and, yeah. and they're good in, on every, Which is, on every level. Which is so boring for them. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you know, who would you, who would you rather be, uh, Clarice yeah. or Hannibal Lecter? <laughs> you know? Nobody wants to be Batman. <laughs> every actor wants to play the Joker, yes. and that's the reason they keep making 
That's the reason A-list actors, the finest actors in the world, keep getting to play the Joker. Yeah. Because there's something appealing about the Joker to an actor. Nobody wants to be Batman <laughs> other than as a career move. It's the, Yeah, at first it seems like a great idea, but I, as far as uh, 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 I think Keaton deliberately stopped doing Batman because he got tired of being yeah. upstage. Yeah. And Val Kilmer probably because he's so incredibly talented. George Clooney, he, well... Did you see the movie Val? The documentary on can we talk huh. about, so I just watched the documentary about Val Kilmer, a guy who now has throat cancer and can barely speak. Um, this might be a podcast. You know what? I'm going to save this. We'll do a Val right. Kilmer day. I will say Val Kilmer is an actor. I, I think he, um, I, I, I don't say, I don't think he is his generation's um, uh, Kurt Russell. I think he's actually I wanna, more talented than I want to talk about this with you. I want to do a Val Kilmer episode uh-huh. maybe next because he's, okay. he's relevant right now because there's a documentary out about him. We're both going to pick the same movie. No, Spartan. We won't. <laughs> no, we can do Spartan as one of them because we both yeah. do, we, do. We both love Spartan. Love Spartan. All right, I love Spartan too. So we're gonna do Spartan as one of them. Okay. We'll do another. There's got to be a hidden gem. Hidden uh, gem. We'll, I maybe Thunderheart, which I watched yesterday. Mm. Not a great movie, but I enjoyed it. Anyway, mm. Steve, any other final thoughts on this? Go see these movies; they're wonderful. All right, good talking to you again, <laughs> guys. I promise we're gonna be doing this more regularly from here on out. Have a good one. Uh-huh.